So what you're saying is that you have stuff? Well, I always have something to talk about. You always have something to talk about. Even if I'm feeling like completely vacuous and like my head is a large echoing cavern with yes. stalagmites and stalactites and things like that. Absolutely. And the constant drip, drip, drip of the ages. <laughs> is it drip, drip, drip of stomach acid? No. <laughs> it's, what is it? 9.04 a.m. Saturday, June the 27th, 2020. I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's the Bill and Diane show. <laughs> kind of went lower there. I you did? don't know if you noticed. I usually go... Doo, 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 oh, yeah. But I went, you were doo, kind doo, of lower. Doo, doo. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. <laughs> that sounds very interesting, Diane. It's a, it's a lovely uh, Saturday morning here in the Plague Times. And uh, I'm not wearing a mask. And, uh, well, because we're sitting at home. Oh, right. We're inside at home. Uh, if I was going to make her sick, she'd already be sick. And if she was going to make me sick, I'd already be sick. We've already been sick. I was sick earlier this year. Well, we're quarantined together. That's, we are together. That's the nice thing. That is a nice it, thing. Is that you don't have to wear a mask around the person you're but, quarantined with. But... It has been a hectic week here in Lake Amphetamine, as per usual. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. For you, probably more than me, although I think psychologically I am more damaged by my week than you are from yours. You have this kind of resiliency that I don't, I don't know, you need to put out a training video or (laughs) start a church or something. You know, I'm in. I just, uh, I need to learn how to preserve my psychological integrity uh, like you do. How do you do it, Diane? How do you do it? Tell us. <laughs> or you could talk about something else if you want to. I, I don't know how I do it. I think it's just because I feel like this is life, and life is always chaotic and bizarre, and, and got o- it overall enjoyable. <laughs> yes. You know? yeah. It's always beauty and terror wrapped into one, and you got to just ride that surf. It's the truth. I'm having a good. Uh, Senior experience. Yeah, I was um, thinking. Uh, very nice because I'm rereading for the first time in probably 20 years uh, Kurt Vonnegut's book Bluebeard, and I don't remember hardly anything about this book. I thought and you said you never read Bluebeard. No, I read Bluebeard. I read it a long time ago. But I don't remember well, anything, so it's like I've never read it. So I I can reread all of Kurt Vonnegut probably and and not. And, you know, it'd be like the first time. I got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. Wow, this guy's really good. How come I've never read him before? What's the deal? Ah, ham and eggs. I remember I was reading Kurt Vonnegut when he was still Kurt Vonnegut Jr. I read just a couple of books by Kurt Vonnegut when I was younger, but uh, when I was younger, like college age younger. And he didn't speak to me back then. Oh. As much, I mean, I enjoyed his way of writing, certainly, because yeah. he's just an amazing writer. Right. But I think that in my, my more pristine, unsullied youth. Really? <laughs> well, okay. pretty much. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I was not as drawn to his topics. Oh. And that is why I called Kuth Buzzard up and said, I want to place an order for Vonnegut. Because I suddenly thought, you know what? I think his topics will be just right on right now. 
When I was looking at the Vonnegut catalog, because there's so many books to choose from, and I didn't Mm -hmm. want to just buy a hoard. So I I was reading the topics of each book Uh and also got Cat's Cradle. Cat's Cradle was in there, was it? Or was it? Yeah. Uh, That was the one I read when I was younger. And I thought I definitely need to revisit that because... That's a great one. But I don't remember much about it. I just remember that I loved his writing, but the topic didn't speak to me at the time. Ah. And now, uh, the one that I chose just because of the topic matter uh, is God Bless You, Mr. Mr. Rosewater. And it has been blowing (laughs) my mind. Because he wrote it in 1965. Yeah. And it shows you how, you know, how we haven't covered as much ground as we thought we have. Of course, we have personally, we've covered ground. But as a society, it's... uh, It's it's just remarkable. I just... uh, Especially because it's speaking to all the issues that we're having right now. Mm. And that, I think, is the uh, amazing thing <laughs> about this. Well, it wasn't prescient. Pardon me, I'm going to have another drink of coffee. Because it, the, the fact is that these issues existed then. You, boy. As much as they do now. That's good coffee. I was even wondering whether you would... Whether I, Bill Davy? Whether you, Bill Davy, would uh, like to read a portion of this. Which part? The letter? Yeah, the letter. I think it's, yeah, inside the letter. The cousin or whoever you may be. Do you want me to? Yeah. I just think it's so fascinating. And all the listeners need to know is that there is a Rosewater fortune that the descendants of this one family, Rosewater, inherit. Right. And they can spend it freely. The charter prohibits the senator's heirs with having anything to do with the management of the foundation's capital. But they can, uh, it says caring for the capital became the responsibility of a corporation that was born spontaneously with the foundation. And so they take care of the monetary issues, but the, the Rosewater descendants get to spend the money freely. Dear cousin, or whoever you may be, congratulations on your great good fortune. Have fun. It may increase your perspective to know what sorts of manipulators and custodians your unbelievable wealth has had up to now. Like so many great American fortunes, the Rosewater pile was accumulated in the beginning by a humorless, constipated Christian farm boy turned speculator and briber during and after the Civil War. The farm boy was Noah Rosewater, my great-grandfather, who was born in Rosewater County, Indiana. Noah and his brother George inherited from their pioneer father 600 acres of farmland, land as dark and rich as chocolate cake, and a small saw factory that was nearly bankrupt. War came. George raised a rifle company, marched away at its head. Noah hired a village idiot to fight in his place, converted the saw factory to the manufacture of swords and bayonets, converted the farm to the raising of hogs. Abraham Lincoln declared that no amount of money was too much to pay for the restoration of the Union, so Noah priced his merchandise in scale with the national tragedy. 
and he made this discovery. Government objections to the price or quality of his wares could be vaporized with bribes that were pitifully small. He married Cleota Herrick, the ugliest woman in Indiana, because she had $400,000. With her money, he expanded the factory and bought more farms, all in Rosewater County. He became the largest individual hog farmer in the North, and, in order not to be victimized by meat packers, he bought controlling interest in an Indianapolis slaughterhouse. In order not to be victimized by steel suppliers, he bought controlling interest in a steel company in Pittsburgh. In order not to be victimized by coal suppliers, he bought controlling interest in several mines. In order not to be victimized by money lenders, he founded a bank. And his paranoid reluctance to be a victim caused him to deal more and more in valuable papers, in stocks and bonds, and less and less in swords and pork. Small experiments with worthless papers convinced him that such papers could be sold effortlessly. While he continued to bribe persons in government to hand over treasuries and national resources, his first enthusiasm became the peddling of watered stock. When the United States of America, which was meant to be a utopia for all, was less than a century old, Noah Rosewater and a few men like him demonstrated the folly of the Founding Fathers in one respect— those sadly recent ancestors had not made it the law of the utopia that the wealth of each citizen should be limited. This oversight was engendered by a weak-kneed sympathy for those who loved expensive things, and by the feeling that the continent was so vast and valuable, and the population so thin and enterprising, that no thief, no matter how fast he stole, could more than mildly inconvenience anyone. Noah and a few like him perceived that the continent was in fact finite, and that the venal office holders, legislators in particular, could be persuaded to toss up great hunks of it for grabs, and to toss them in such a way as to have them land where Noah and his kind were standing. Thus did a handful of rapacious citizens come to control all that was worth controlling in America. Thus was the savage and stupid and entirely inappropriate and unnecessary and humorless American class system created. Honest, industrious, peaceful citizens were classed as bloodsuckers if they asked to be paid a living wage. And they saw that praise was reserved henceforth for those who devised means of getting paid enormously for committing crimes against which no laws had been passed. Thus the American dream turned belly up turned green, bobbed to the scummy surface of cupidity unlimited, filled with gas, went bang in the noonday sun. E pluribus unum is surely an ironic motto to inscribe on the currency of this utopia gone bust, for every grotesquely rich American represents property, privileges, and pleasures that have been denied to the many. An even more instructive motto in the light of history made by Noah Rosewaters might be, Grab much too much, or you'll get nothing at all. And Noah begat Samuel, who married Geraldine Ames Rockefeller. Samuel became even more interested in politics than his father had been, served the Republican Party tirelessly as a kingmaker, caused the party to nominate men who would whirl like dervishes, ball fluent Babylonian, and order the militia to fire into crowds whenever a poor man seemed on the point of suggesting that he and a rosewater were equal in the eyes of the law. And Samuel bought newspapers, and preachers too. He gave them this simple lesson to teach, and they taught it well. Anybody who thought that the United States of America was supposed to be a utopia was a piggy, lazy, goddamned fool. 
Samuel thundered that no American factory hand was worth more than 80 cents a day, and yet he could be thankful for the opportunity to pay $100,000 or more for a painting by an Italian three centuries dead. And he capped this insult by giving paintings to museums for the spiritual elevation of the poor. The museums were closed on Sundays. And Samuel begat Lister Ames Rosewater, who married Eunice Elliot Morgan. There was something to be said for Lister and Eunice. Unlike Noah and Cleota and Samuel and Geraldine, they could laugh as though they meant it. As a curious footnote to history, Eunice became woman's chess champion of the United States in 1927 and again in 1933. Eunice also wrote an historical novel about a female gladiator, Ramba of Macedon, which was a bestseller in 1936. Eunice died in 1937 in a sailing accident in Contuit, Massachusetts. She was a wise and amusing person, with very sincere anxieties about the condition of the poor. She was my mother. Her husband, Lister, never was in business. From the moment of his birth to the time I am writing this, he has left the manipulation of his assets to lawyers and banks. He has spent nearly the whole of his adult life in the Congress of the United States, teaching morals, first as a representative from the district whose heart is Rosewater County, and then as a senator from Indiana. That he is or ever was an Indiana person is a tenuous political fiction, and Lister begat Elliot. Lister has thought about the effects and implications of his inherited wealth about as much as most men think about their left big toes. The fortune has never amused, worried, or tempted him. Giving 95% of it to the foundation you now control didn't cause him a twinge. And Elliot married Sylvia Duvray Zetterling, a Parisian beauty who came to hate him. Her mother was a patroness of painters. Her father was the greatest living cellist. Her maternal grandparents were a Rothschild and a Dupont. And Elliot became a drunkard, a utopian dreamer, a tin-horn saint, an aimless fool. Begat he, not a soul. Bon voyage, dear cousin, or whoever you are. Be generous. Be kind. You can safely ignore the arts and sciences. They never helped anybody. Be a sincere, attentive friend of the poor. The letter was signed, the late Elliot Rosewater. It's a good passage. <laughs> Well, the, the whole book is sort of a mind-blowing book because of what he is proposing and, and how he relates all the ills of our society to the fact that uh, only a small portion of people have the great majority of wealth. And I was thinking, wow, 1965. And that's what he was thinking at the time. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. It's a good time to be rereading Vonnegut, and Brodigan for that matter. So. Well, and I had read Bluebeard when I was older, and I really liked it. And that's why I got Bluebeard again, because my recollections were that it was about an older gentleman, and so I was uh, really wanted to read again in uh, not my middle age, but in my older age here. Right. So. But then I was reading about Vonnegut's biography, and... I couldn't, I could hardly believe it. All the things that he experienced, it was insane. He, he could have just written a, a novel that was entirely about his life and it would be uh, quite the novel to read. Yeah, that's true. So I oftentimes feel like I'm coming, 
kind of coming late to the party on literature in some way, but... Hmm. Um, well, me too. I mean, there's too much of it. I mean, like we were talking with the, my old college professor, Bill Woolen, the other day about uh, Wilkie Collins. I'd never read any Wilkie Collins, and he's absolutely loving Wilkie Collins, so I ordered a Wilkie Collins book. Which one did you order? Uh, Woman in White. Woman in White. That's yeah. the best one to start with. Because I'd never read Wilkie Collins. I did not know that Wilkie Collins was a contemporary of Charles Dickens. I didn't know any of that stuff. In fact, there was a Wilkie Collins book on my mother's bookshelf when I was a kid. I can't remember which, which one it was. I thought Wilkie Collins was a woman from oh. when I was a kid. I didn't well, find Wilkie out is kind of a funny name. Right. I always thought that Wilkie Collins was a, was a woman. So that's how much. And I was a literature major, for crying out loud. But I think I, when I was, when I, my literature major was much more contemporary. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I was reading Tom Robbins and, and people like that. Who is, you know, owes a great debt of gratitude to, and creative gratitude to Mr. Vonnegut. So. Well, that is one of the <coughs> things that I find very interesting about our pairing. Because I read a lot from the Dickens era. Mm-hmm. I loved that period of time of writing. I was reading Dickens and I read Wilkie Collins after I ran out of Dickens books to read because I was such a fan of Dickens and I also had read that Wilkie was uh, a divisor of the first uh, detective stories that modern detective stories that we read Mm -hmm. that he was the first to kind of spawn that kind of style and I really liked detective uh, uh, writings too so I loved Sherlock Holmes I loved Agatha Christie so I thought Hmm, that sounds like a path I should go down. And I have, uh, I really loved Woman in White. I would love to reread it because I don't remember it well either. I loved The Moonstone, too, by Wilkie Collins. Also don't remember enough about it to, um, not to enjoy it if I had the reread. But Yeah, see, that's a lovely thing about being older, we're able to reread these books that 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 uh, affected us a certain way when we were like in our twenties, and now we get to you get to have a completely different experience of them when you're in your sixties. So I think that's well, a, I when think that's I a good s- thing about life. When I said that I was unsullied and and pristine <laughs> when I was reading some of these, what I meant is that. I was still believing that everything was going to be good and I was still idealistic and it was taking my idealism down a peg and I didn't like that feeling. Now that my idealism has uh, (laughs) come down quite a few pegs, uh, well, it has. I mean, I'm still kind of idealistic in most people's views, but compared to what I was when I was young, not so much. So I think another thing that, that you and I have in common is that we always felt like, when you said earlier that you always felt like you were late to the party, I always felt like I was naive and that all the people around me were operating on a different level and they all knew, were much more worldly than me and had a lot more varied and, you know, ribald experiences and things like that where I was kind of like, huh? <laughs> you know, I was always kind of like the last one to know about anything like that. And uh, I still feel that way sometimes. Well, I'm even more on that that level than you. Well, so, but I think that is a, 
a quality of uh, uh, something that we've observed in ourselves over the decades that I think we have in common is we've always kind of felt like a behind the eight ball a little bit when it comes to a kind of a, a larger consciousness of, of life and its uh, strangeness. Although, I, you know, I, I feel like I've become fairly well acquainted with life and its strangeness. But, you know. Well, I sometimes wonder if that's part of the living in the imagination to mm. a great degree, because yeah. I think both you and I live in our imaginations quite a lot. So one time you were telling me that a lot of the women that you went out with didn't feel like you were an active enough participant in going out to the mountains and, you know, parachute gliding or whatever. And uh, didn't you? You yeah, said... Sure. <laughs> but that you weren't kind of out and active in the world as much. And, and I really related to you because of that very fact, because I always felt like you and I have We're pretty happy just being at home and living in our imagination. Yeah, well, because and... it's just like the vast territory that you can explore in your imagination is. Which is another reason that's something else that you and I share is we've never had the urge to travel. You know, I've never thought about. I, I don't consider myself a tourist. I don't think I would. I think I would make a lousy tourist. Um, yeah, that's why we had said if we ever went to some of the countries that we. I'd rather like the idea just to stay to go in and one live place. there for yeah. a couple of months or something like that. I want to immerse myself in a place because I like, I think I have a very strong sense of place in me. Um, the places where I have lived, I have a great identification with and a, and a, a kind of a fundamental, almost visceral connection with. And I think I could establish that pretty much anywhere. It's just a matter of you need to be there. You know, you need to get to know it more intimately than you can when you're traveling through. That's exactly right. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why I think I didn't enjoy being on the road as a musician that much. Because I never got, I, I went to all these places and I wanted to stay everywhere that I went. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, I would, I would meet all these great people and see this great, uh, you know, geography. And I would just want to, oh, I want to live here. I want to be here. I want to. You know, I need a I need a bigger hit than this is giving me. You know, I think that's why you like going out to Nebraska with Tim because oh, yeah. you get to sort of live you get to land in that in a place area, and yeah, be, and be there, yeah, and so. talk to the people in very intimate surroundings, get to know them in a very right. uh, real way. Yeah, so. and it's a it's a way uh, when you get to know the people like that. It's a it really it's a clear establishment of yes, we are all alike. We are all connected. We may have different ideas, but that really does not, those, those differences are not what define us That's right. as people. It's the things that we share in common that define us. So, well, yeah. I had really planned to read the Vonnegut this uh, when I'm furloughed yeah. <laughs> because I'll have a whole week and then another whole week yeah. to just... Uh, immerse myself in that world of imagination and especially because of our our uh, current rise of COVID-19 in the country I don't think that we'll be doing much outside of the home again so I'm really looking forward to that yeah I mean it's certainly not something that I would have wished for necessarily I mean time that is not 
dedicated to tasks or or responsibilities i mean that's there's something to be relished about that kind of unstructured time is nice um, i wouldn't have wished for something like this to happen to provide the time oh man me neither yeah. me neither but it'll be a welcome relief uh, to have a furlough by the time it comes because since other people have been furloughed, I have just been working like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, just trying to to do all this computer work was so fast that mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel blurred at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not going well for those who are teleworking in busy jobs, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, most of the people that I've talked to that are like that have gotten much busier. Yeah. And uh, there's something, you got to be a lot more uh, stringent when you're working at home about separating your work time from your free time. And uh, I think a lot of people kind of get sucked into the, they have less free time working at home. Yeah. Uh, well, what about our music today? Oh, weren't you going to, didn't you have something you wanted to talk about? That was what I was going to talk oh, about, was I see. Mr. Rosewater. Mr. Rosewater, okay. Well, uh, well yeah, back to our uh, list of influential albums, and uh, one of the ones that was influential to me was uh, Cat Stevens' Teaser and the Firecat. Now, T for the Tillerman seems to be everybody's favorite Cat Stevens album, but mine has always been Teaser and the Firecat. It would have also been on my list had it been more of a... I mean, I just love that album, but yeah. it was not one of the ones that kind of built in my well, that's psyche. The, it was the first Cat Stevens album that was at our house, and I believe, again, it was my sister who had the album. Um, but it ended up in my room because I listened to it over and over and over. And I was looking at it this morning trying to decide a, kind of a couple of songs to play, and I'm like... So I still don't know which songs I'm going to play. I think I'm going to decide when I'm upstairs and I'm, you know, putting the show together and doing the post-production stuff on the show. Then I will just decide at that point. Well, which, and which which song actually, I don't think that there's a ringer on there that ain't a album. On the, there ain't a clunker it's in like the bunch. every single one is so magical and wonderful in its own yeah. way. It's true. That how could you possibly? Like one of the ones that I never really heard on the radio that much was Ruby Love. And mm-hmm. I love that song. Yep. It makes me so happy when I hear it. Just yeah. it's, there's, there's a mandolin or balalaika or some yes, kind of Yes, I think it's a balalaika. I've always thought ah. of balalaika. And it's just got this amazing quality to it. And Changes 4 is another one that I've always thought was just amazing. So I don't know. I don't know, people. But, uh, you know, so it, it's probably time for everybody, uh, the three or four listeners out there, to just drag out their copy of Teaser and the Firecat. And, and listen just listen to, to them listen all. Listen to it all the way through and just uh, relish that. Uh, the sonic qualities on that album were just, uh, at the time that it came out, it sounded better on my little four-inch J.C. Penny turntable than any record I had. It just was so bright and so punchy and so... Uh, you know, just melodic and beautiful. It was just beautiful from start to finish. And we must also mention the beautiful cover. Well, yeah, Cat Stevens is a pretty good artist. He was such an amazing artist. I love that kind of art. He's still alive. He's re-releasing Tea for the Tillerman, you know. 
I mean, he's putting it out. He, no, I know he's He's re-recorded the entire album as an old man. That's amazing. And he's, and he's amazing. Re- releasing a, a Tiefer Tillerman 2. I didn't mean to say was. I just meant that on the well, cover... Well, he was Cat Stevens, now he's Yusuf Islam. Right. So, yeah. But his, his album art was always incredible, too. It's true. So, I'm not sure what, but here's a little Cat Stevens for you. We 
Let's all stop living, 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 living for the one. 